I'm Bishop Sherman Young. Each week, the Word Break podcast answers questions about God, faith, and other spiritual issues. Here is this week's message. Chapter 3. And... And then I need you to find the Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Revelation. I want to read what has been the most misunderstood and mistaught verse in the book of Revelation. And yet it is the best known. Revelation, chapter 3 and verse 20. And it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. I'll stop there. Go to the Old Testament book of the song, the Song of Solomon. Old Testament, the heart of the Old Testament, you'll find the Song of Solomon, chapter 5. And I'd actually like to begin to read at verse number 2. The Song of Solomon, chapter 5, beginning at verse 2. It reads, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. I've taken off my robe. How shall I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How shall I defile them? And behold, my beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with mirth, my fingers with liquid mirth on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me, they wounded me. The keepers of the wall took away my veil from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am lovesick. You may be seated. I want to tag this text a knock at the door. Can you say that with me, please? A knock at the door. These two passages stand separate and distinct in history. One is found in the Old Testament, the other in the New Testament. In the poetic section of the Old Testament, there is not a greater volume of spiritual poetry than the Song of Solomon, written by the wisest man and wealthiest king in the history of the world. Solomon himself. And yet in the New Testament, in the prophetic part,
part of the New Testament. Describing a time in prophecy, John records this revelation. At Revelation 3 and 20, behold, says Jesus, I stand at the door and knock. A revelation is often interpreted in many ways. John, banished to the Isle of Patmos, was there because of his preaching and his ministry. He'd not stolen anything. He'd not hurt anyone. But he was put there because of his preaching. The truth of the matter is, as we think about Alcatraz, or we think about Rikers Island in New York, this was like a prison. And John was left there to die. History said they tried to kill him in other ways, and he survived. They thought if they left him alone, he would die on that island. For John only to find out he was not alone. There was another on the island. Another with a capital A. And while John was walking about the beach front or some part of that island, he heard a voice from behind him. And Revelation chapter 1 says he turned to see who it was. And when he turned, he saw Jesus. But he didn't look the same as he looked the last time John saw him. When John saw him the last time at the ascension, when he was going up in Acts chapter 1, and the clouds received him into the midair, he looked as he'd always looked. But when John saw him that day, he was different. John said he saw him, his hair was different. It looked like lamb's wool. Uh, he was arrayed in a white garment from the shoulders down to the feet. About his waist was a golden girdle. His feet looked as if they had been brass polished. And his voice was the sound of a thousand waterfalls. And John recognized that this time he has not come to save. He's come to judge. Because the brazen feet, the color of brass was the symbol of judgment. When he came in Bethlehem as a baby, he came to save us. But when he comes back again as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he's coming to judge us. And with all of the controversy over the book of Revelation, there are some amongst us that would shy away from it. Some people say, well, I've tried to read it and it frightens me. Every time I get into it and I see all of these creatures and monsters and all of these acts of nature, I, I get troubled and I can't sleep at night. Then there are others who say, well, I'm trying to understand, was that then or is it now or is it to come? Or I don't understand how it breaks down. It confuses me. And so many people have stayed away from it. But the truth of the matter is God would never give us something in the word and did not intend for us to understand it. That's not God. God would never give me a book in the Bible in order to confuse me. God would never give me a book in the Bible to frighten me. If it is in his word, he intends for me to understand it. He would never judge me for something that I could not understand. 
And if it is in the word, and if there is a special blessing attached to those who will study this book and understand it, don't say it's confusing. Because God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. I wish I had a Bible reader. God is not about scaring you. He's not giving us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and good judgment. So when you approach the prophetic book of Revelation, don't have any fear and don't sign up to be confused. It is the word of the living God. And as the word of God, God, Jesus uttered these words to John. Now, your Bible at the top of the chapter 1, it might say the revelation of St. John, the divine. That is not true. This is not John's revelation. This is Jesus talking to John. And Jesus found John. The Bible said they left him isolated. But have you found out that isolation is often the place of revelation? You can't hear God in a crowd. You can't hear God with people all around you. There are times in life when you need to isolate yourself. When you need to turn the plate over. When you need to turn off the television. Cut off the text messaging. Get off the internet. And you need to get somewhere quiet with God. Because if you can't handle isolation, you can never handle revelation. Some people are afraid to be by themselves. They're afraid of being lonely or alone. But the truth is, that's the best time to hear God. Even Jesus said, when you pray, if you need to do it right, get in a secret closet. Now, that doesn't mean go in a closet in the house. That means shut the world out. Isolate yourself. The book of James said, be afflicted and mourn. Go somewhere quiet. Stop the laughter. Stop the jesting and the playing and listen to the Lord. And John got a revelation. Can you say revelation? But you have to understand the book of Revelation is written in a code language. And that's why some find it so hard to understand because they don't know the code. The reason he writes it in a code is so that the Roman captors that held the Christians captive in the Roman Empire could not understand the book. Now, the saints of that day knew the code. So when they received the book of Revelation from John, they instantly understood some of what he says is to be taken literally. But other things that he says is to be taken figuratively. Some of what he says, it is exactly what he said. But other things that he said, you have to apply the code to get the revelation. And it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the Antichrist. Too many times people, every time there's a war in the Middle East, or every time there's trouble in Arabia or Syria or Jordan, every time there's an Al-Qaeda or an ISIS group, people want to get in the book of Revelation looking for the Antichrist. Every time the Pope dies and the conclave and lets another one at the Vatican, people want to get in the book of Revelation looking for the Antichrist. Revelation is not about the Antichrist. It's about Jesus Christ. I'm not concerned about the Antichrist. I don't care who the Antichrist is because I'm in Jesus Christ. I wish I had a witness. And the Bible said if you're in Christ, you're justified. 
if you're in Christ, you are built up in faith. For those who are in Christ, the Bible said, you are a new creation. So the Antichrist is not the goal of the book. The, the World War III, Armageddon, is not the goal of the book. The goal of the book is to help us understand Jesus better. That he's more than one walking the dusty streets of Nazareth, healing the sick and raising the dead. He's more than one feeding 5,000 plus crowd hungry people. He is more than one that goes around unstopping deaf ears and opening the eyes of the blind. That was his ministry and it is our ministry today because we are the body of Christ. And although he did great works, he said we should do greater works. But beyond that, Jesus is the great conqueror. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And Revelation shows us just that. And you have to apply the code. For example, when you read Revelation, you'll notice that he uses uh, certain colors, certain numbers, and certain symbols. For example, you'll notice when you get to the four horses riding around Revelation chapter 6, you see the four horses riding, but there are no horses. It's the colors that's important. The first horse is a white horse. The second horse that comes by is a red horse. The next one is a black horse, and the last one is a pale horse. There are no horses. It's the colors that's important because white is the symbol of peace. White is the symbol of peace. So the white horse rides meaning a time of peace. Beyond that, the red horse rides. Red is the symbol of war. So John says there's going to be war, peace, and then there's going to be war. After the red horse rides, then you see the black horse rides, which is a symbol of starvation. The black horse rides because whenever there is war, there is always food rationing as a result. And certain innocent people starve. That's why when we bomb places, we drop food down after we drop the bomb. Then the pale horse rides. And the pale horse is death. Now in Revelation, you'll notice he uses numbers. For example, the number three. In, in the church, the number three represents the trinity. Got the Father, got the Son, got the Holy Ghost. And then the unholy trinity, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. The number four represents the earth because they believe that the earth was divided in four sections, north, south, east, and west. The number five represents ministry. Ephesians 4.11 said, And he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, the fivefold grace ministry. The number six in the Bible is the number for man. Because man was created on the sixth day. And because the word sex and the word six is really the same word. And there has to be sex in order to make mankind. For example, when he says of the Antichrist, the number of his name is 666. 666. Three means spiritual power. Three sixes. But then six means a human being. So the Antichrist will be a human being with great spiritual power. The number seven in the Bible has to do with perfection. Perfection. Because the Hebrew word for seven means to be perfect, to be full, to be satisfied, to be complete, to have enough. And so when you read the Bible, you notice that the Bible starts off with sevens. 
God created the heaven and earth in six days. Come on, I need a Bible reader. And the seventh day he rested. There's seven days in a week. The Bible said, remember the Sabbath day or the seventh day to keep it holy because it symbolizes completion and perfection. When it said God rested, it doesn't mean that he was tired because God doesn't get tired. He doesn't slumber nor sleep. It means that it was done. It was complete. He was done with his work. He was finished with it. And he is the God of a finished product. The number, the number seven has to do with that. And you read the Bible, you see Joseph telling Pharaoh, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. When Naaman wants to be healed, he goes down to Elisha and he tells him to go dip in the Jordan seven times. And his flesh will become the flesh of a baby. Why? Because at the seventh dip, he completed a life cycle and a lifetime. When Samson gets a haircut in the wrong barbershop, Delilah cuts off seven locks of his head. And he's as weak as any other man. When Joshua is about to take over Jericho, they march around the wall seven days. And then seven times on the seventh day, and the walls collapse. In the New Testament, Jesus secures our redemption with seven statements from the cross. In the book of Revelation, there are seven woes, seven judgments, seven times the name Jesus appears, and seven times the name Jesus Christ appears. There are seven days in a week, seven colors in a rainbow. There are seven parts to your body, the right arm, the left arm, the right leg, the left leg, the head, the neck, and the trunk. There are seven holes in your head, two ears, two eyes, two nostrils, and one mouth. Around seven months old, a baby starts cutting teeth. Around seven years old, the teeth start falling out. There are seven parts to your voice, bass, baritone, tenor, alto, mezzo-soprano, and soprano. So seven is the complete number, the perfecting number. Eight is the number of new beginnings because if you completed it at seven, whatever's next has to be a brand new start. Nine is the number of judgment in the Bible. There were nine cases of blindness imposed upon people. Nine cases of leprosy imposed upon people as a judgment. The number 10 in the Bible has to do with earthly power, earthly authority. That's why it talks about 10 nations where the number 12 is the nation for divine government. 12 tribes in Israel. I wish I had some help. 12 foundations to the holy city. Twelve gates to the city. Hallelujah. This nation got attacked on September the 11th or 9-11. Nine is the number of judgment. Eleven is one short of perfect divine government. The judgment on this nation came from a different source. I wish I had a witness. And no matter how far we've gotten from it, we're still walking away from God. We're still serving idol gods. We're still turning our back on the church. We still don't pray, still don't understand faith, still don't want the pure word of God taught. We still gather in sanctuaries and want our ears tickled and want our souls aroused. But we don't want to walk the walk and talk the talk. We don't want to represent him everywhere we go. We don't want to stand where we need to stand. Our altars have become tombstones. So revelation helps us to understand. So when the four horses ride, say four horses. 
There are four horses. Four is the number for the earth. North, south, east, west. So that means there's going to be white peace. Peace all over the earth. But after that, there's going to be war. Four horses all over the earth. After that, there's going to be starvation. Four horses all over the earth. After that, there's going to be death all over the earth. Then you notice he uses certain symbols like animals. You know, the oxen that represents patient service. Uh, The lion represents fierceness. The lamb represents humility. And it's only in the book of Revelation that you see Jesus appearing as a lion in one place and a lamb in the other place. Now that seems like a contradiction. How can he be both a lion and a lamb? I guess it just depends on whenever you call him what you need him to be. Sometimes he's as humble and meek as a lamb. But when your enemies come after you, he is as ferocious as a lion. And out of all the confusion in Revelation, Revelation 3.20, knock on the door. Over and over again, I've heard people talk about Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. When I was growing up in Beulah Baptist in Tuscaloosa, they used to, the senior choir used to sing, somebody's knocking at your door. Oh, sinner, why don't you answer? Somebody's knocking at the door. Now, I understand the illustration, but that is not Revelation 3.20. Jesus is not knocking on the door of a sinner's heart. Not Revelation 3.20. Revelation 3.20 is not about Jesus trying to get to unbelievers. It's about unbelieving believers. Oh, I need a little help right here. See, Revelation 3.20 is a verse of where John writes a letter to a church in a place called Laodicea. And the church at Laodicea, according to John, is neither hot, Oh, you know what I'm saying. The church is neither hot nor cold. As a matter of fact, when you look at the letter, the Bible said that the church was located in a good city. The Bible said that they had good creature comforts. As a matter of fact, when you read the letter, it said that they said to themselves, we don't need anything. Starting at verse number 14, the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, and he goes on and on. These things said to amen, the faithful true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, and I know you are neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. Verse number 17, he said, because you say I'm rich, have become wealthy, have need of nothing. See, the only thing that bothers me about that is... In the book of Revelation, we understand that there were not just seven churches located in these cities, but that the the churches break down according to church history. That the first letter, the one to Ephesus where he said, you left your first love, that looks just like the church in the book of Acts. So if we divide it out as we have, when we get to the last letter, guess what church that is? The church of our day. <laughs> Look at it. We don't need nothing. We cool. 
We got all we need. We, we, got, we got everything we need. We don't, we don't, need, we don't need to meet for prayer. We, got, we, all, we all right. We all, we, all, we all right. We don't need revival. We, we all right. We don't need to come to Bible study. We all right. We don't need teaching. We don't need to tithe. We all right. That's the problem. That the church of Laodicea had the wrong attitude about who they were in Christ. I wish I had some help here. And the truth of the matter is that when you measure the church, it fell short in one area. They had preaching and singing and ushering and ministering in-house, but they didn't have Jesus. These folk had locked Jesus out of his own church. I don't have a witness here. Look in the window. Everybody else is in there. Everybody's where they're supposed to be. But one central figure. Where is Jesus? Verse 20, behold, I'm standing at the door trying to get in my own church. They had evicted him, expelled him. They had thrown him out. They had shut him out. And you know, when people come to church, they ought to come for one reason, to see Jesus. Oh, I need a little help right there. Because this is the Lord's church, last I checked. What do you say? Upon this rock, I will build your church. I will build my church. So when people come here, they ought to be looking for him. They ought not be looking for the preacher, whether he's cute or not. They ought not come here because the music is good. They ought to come here because Jesus is here. He should be the central attraction. Every song ought to be about him. I, I wish I had some help now. I know we want to sing about our moaning and groaning and I'm tired, weak and warm. But every song ought to be about him. If you stand up and testify, that ought to be about him. Not about how broke, busted, and disgusted you were and still feel like you are sometimes. That ain't no testimony. A testimony is when you take 10 seconds to talk about you and three minutes to talk about Jesus. He ought to be the center of attention. But in too many churches, I regret, he's been put out. And therefore, you've got saints that come there, but they give him leftover everything. They give him the time they have nothing else to do with. They give him the money that other folk didn't take. And they give him the talent that no one else would pay them to use. Icicles in the amen corner. Frostbite in the pews. It is said that a man, a man came into some meat butcher shop had closed. The butcher gave the man all the meat. I'm out of business. The man thought to himself, I don't have a place to store all of this meat so it won't ruin. His wife said to him, why don't you take it up to the church and put it in the sanctuary? That's the coldest place in town. Oh, I'll get a witness in a minute. You ever heard people get up and announce, now we're going to have revival if you ain't got nothing else to do. 
Come on over. Now that's giving God the time you ain't got nothing else to do with. We give him the money other folk didn't take. You know, I, 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 you know, they got the tax out of my check. They got the credit union, got that out of my check. Then I had another direct deposit come out of my check. And then I got to pay my credit card. I got to pay my car note. I got to pay my house note. got to pay my rent. I got to pay my lights. I got to pay my gas. I got to pay my water. Now, Lord, let me see what I got left. Oh, I don't have a witness here. You know, you know, God, you know, God told Israel, don't bring me no sick offering. He said, you bring me the best lambs, the best pigeons, the best dove. He said, don't you bring me no bird with broken wings. Don't bring me a lamb that's full of disease. When you bring me a sacrifice, always bring me off the top. And God is still saying, don't bring me no sick offering. You say, what's a sick offering? A sick offering is when the money that you took out of your purse is less than what the purse cost. That's a sick offering. You carrying a $300 purse and give a $5 offering. That's a sick offering. A sick offering is when your manicure and your pedicure cost more than what you put in church. That's a sick offering. A sick offering is when you get it glued or sold in, sit in the beauty shop for three hours and can't stay in church an hour and 15 minutes without checking your watch. That's a sick offering. When you got to decide whether you're going to church or going to stay home and watch the football game, that's a sick offering. God said, don't bring me your leftovers. I don't want what's left over what I blessed you with. All that you have came from God. I wish I had a witness here. Every dime in your pocket, in your bank account, the car you rode up in here in, the job that you work on came from God. And God said, when you come to me, don't bring me your leftovers. That's lukewarm. That's lukewarm. Because if Jesus is the center attraction, in his presence, I can't keep my composure. Oh, Lord. What some people call praise doesn't spell praise. Look like it's spelled days. Now, I'm not advocating noise for noise's sake, but I will say this. If you get close to a fire, you're going to say something. The Bible said, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. All you lands. But then you move from the praise of God to the service of God. He said, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all you lands. But then he turns around and says, serve the Lord. Because praise without service is dead works. Hooping and hollering and running around the church and not serving in the ministers of the church is nothing but a show. Oh, I don't have a witness around here. 
Church is not an auditorium. Church, church is not a theater. We don't come to church to see a production. We come to church to worship God as one. And when we get through praise and worshiping, somebody needs to pick up the paper. Somebody needs to sing in the choir. Somebody needs to hold the door. Somebody needs to go see about the sick and the shut-in. Somebody needs to take care of the children and the youth. Somebody needs to look after the senior citizens. We have to stop shouting and go to work. And if you work well, you'll shout better. Oh, I don't have a witness here. You know why I shout so? Because I work so hard. If you love the Lord, it's going to cost you something. He said, behold, I stand at the door of my church trying to get in. Thank God for Song of Solomon 5 because it colors it in for us. Because, you know, the Song of Solomon uh, is an Old Testament word with New Testament principle. See, in the Song of Solomon, there's only three voices heard. The king, uh, which is the groom, the bride, and the daughters of Jerusalem. And in the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament, it's talking about God being married to Israel. That was his wife. I wish I had a witness. He called her his wife. In Ezekiel 16, he said, you were like a little baby girl when I first saw you, newly born, laying on the side of the road. Your cord hadn't been tied. You were laying in the mud, he said, and everyone that saw thee passed by on the other side. But when I saw thee, I said, this is the time of love. I picked you up. I tied your cord. I bathed you. I brought you to my house. I cleaned you up, put clothes on you, and I raised you for myself. When you were a little girl, he said, I planted your hair. When you got to be an older woman, he said, I bought jewelry for you in order to adorn you properly. He said, but when you got grown, you cheated on me and start going out with other gods. In Jeremiah, he said, I love you, and I'm not going to give you a divorce. In Hosea, he told the prophet, go down to the red light district. Take a prostitute and bring her back up and marry her in front of the people so they'll see what kind of wife they are to me. Oh, I wish I had a witness. And in the New Testament, Jesus is engaged to the church. He says he's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. And so in Song of Solomon chapter 5 is an illustration of the church waiting on Jesus to come. Song of Solomon 5. Give me a few minutes and I'm out of here. Song of Solomon 5. You've got, you've got a woman. The woman represents the church. You've got a man who was supposed to come and pick her up that night. Apparently he was running late. Because verse 2 said, he was standing at the door knocking with a bouquet of flowers. Verse 1 said, he had stopped by the garden to pick up a bouquet. Because fellas know, sometimes when you get in trouble, flowers helps. Jesus is our husband. He's coming to pick us up. But it looks like it's taken him so long. The early church waited on him, he didn't come. The medieval period church waited on him, he didn't come. Over the centuries, the churches have waited on him, he didn't come. 21 centuries later, he still hadn't come. 
What has the church done? You know what she did in the Song of Solomon 5? The scripture said she went to bed. Song of Solomon chapter 5 said, verse 2 said, I sleep, but my heart is awake. And I hear the voice of my beloved knocking on the door. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. Sweet talk. From the other side of the door. But sister girl had gone to bed. He was late. I don't know what time she thought he was coming. But he didn't get there at that time. And she got to the point. Come on sisters. She got to the point where she took off her dress. Put on her nightgown. And went to sleep. He's knocking at the door, open, open. And she says to him, oh, it's too late. Uh-uh, too late. So, I'm, so I've washed my feet. How can I? Do? Now, if you're from the country, you know what that means. Come on, in the old days, when you used to bathe in a number three tub on Saturday night. Oh, I know we're bougie now, but now you remember when. We didn't bathe every night of the week. We bathed on Saturday night because we had to go to church the next day. But all through the week, we'd wash our feet because we didn't have good shoes. And the bottom of our feet was just as hard as the sole of a shoe. And you didn't get in mama's bed with dirty feet. Oh, I'm looking for a witness. Now, I, I know there's a bougie element in here somewhere, but... Well, I'm looking for somebody who knows what I'm talking about. She said, I've washed my feet. Then the Bible said he reached in and tried to open the door from the inside, and she smelled the aroma of the flowers. And she got up and opened the door, and he wasn't there. Now listen, that is an illustration of Jesus and the church. Jesus comes for the church, but she ain't ready to receive him. What is she doing in the 21st century? Watching or sleeping? I wish I had some help here. Uh, where is the church? With all of these murders, suicides, can't turn on the news without child molestation. Shooting on school campuses, college campuses. Where is the church? voice with all of this corruption and all of the people taking any liberties they want to take and two men forcing people to marry them when marriage of same-sex people is against their own values suing people in court where is the church where's our prayer meeting the strongholds and call down the principalities of terrorism. Islam is well visible but where is the church? Going to sleep and the Lord is knocking at the door. And you know what she said to him? Uh-uh. I've gotten none. In other words, she didn't go to sleep by accident. She went to sleep on purpose. 
and he's out there knocking at the door. And she's asleep. And she said, no, I can't, I, can't, I can't let you in. And the Bible said he reached inside the house and tried to unlock the door from the inside. <laughs> I know she wasn't black because you reach inside a black woman's house and she done told you to go home. You're going to draw back a nub. He was just trying to unlock it from the inside. He reached. See, that's how I know it's God. He's reaching after us. He's reaching after this world. That's a picture of grace. And she smelled the bouquet of flowers on his hand. That's the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, meekness, faith. She smelled the aroma of the bouquet. And he said, open to me. And you know what the Bible said? When he reached in and she smelled the flowers. Oh, she got excited. Um, She got motivated. I'm trying trying to say this without saying she got hot. I mean, what? Um. Did I say it anyway? I was thinking out loud. She got turned on. And the Bible says she jumped up, ran to the door, opened the door, opened her arms, and he was gone. I'm afraid by the time some of us wake up and get up, it's going to be too late. I wish I had some help here. Bible said, today if you hear my voice, harden not your heart. And you know, she, she didn't think, the word said she didn't think about being in a nightgown. She ran out in the yard looking for it. Then she ran up and down the street looking for him. Not thinking about, she was in her night clothes. And the Bible said the keepers of the city saw that young woman and mistook her for a woman of ill repute. And they molested her. You're going to serve somebody. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve the devil. You're going to serve somebody. And what the devil wants to do is catch us when we're vulnerable. Take our children away from us. I wish I had a witness. Where are our young people? Where are our children? Why are they more attracted to a thuggish lifestyle than a Christian lifestyle? The devil has seduced a generation and all the talent that should be being used in the house of God is not even in the church. Our children should be singing. Our children should do praise dances. Our children should be doing missionary work. But the devil has called them and abused them and taken advantage of them through drugs. Through thuggish music. And they raped that woman. They raped that woman. They 
robbed her of her chastity. I'm through, but the Bible said, while the molestation was going on, she cried out, daughters of Jerusalem, have you seen my sweetheart? If you see him, give him this message for me. Tell him that I'm lovesick. You know, Doc, don't nothing go right when you're lovesick. You don't even eat right when you're lovesick. Oh, I'm looking for somebody that can. Listen, you don't want to talk to nobody when you're lovesick. You don't even want to go to work. No, you need a job. But you're lovesick. I don't feel like going to work. I'm going to call in sick. Because when you're lovesick, you cannot be your best. And I want to say to the church as I close tonight, we cannot live in a lovesick situation. We need to be close to God. We need to be intimate with God. We need to be in the presence of God. They asked the woman, said, well, why are you looking for that man? Who is he? And she responded by saying, My beloved is a different kind of man. She said, uh, He is the fairest of 10,000 men. His head is like fine gold, and his locks of hair are wavy. His eyes are like doves by the river water. And his cheeks are a bed of spices. She said his hands are like gold set in a barrel. And his legs are like pillars of marble. He is altogether lovely. You know, this world needs a, a description of Jesus. And we need to be busy describing him for who he is. You know, I don't want the Lord at the door of the church. I want the Lord inside the church. And that's why you hear him said, uh, Behold, I stand. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will let me in, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. You know, there's a difference in visitation and habitation. Do you hear me? You know it's all right when people come to visit, but you don't want them to stay too long. And when it comes to the Lord, I'm the other way around. I don't want him to visit here. I want him to dwell here. 
That's what he's talking about. If you let me in, I will sit down and you will be the host and I will be your guest. But if you let me stay long enough, I will become your host and be the guest in your own life. Do you hear me? And I thank God tonight. I used to host Jesus in my life. But now tonight I'm a guest in my own life. He keeps on doing great things for me without me even asking him. He heals my body. I wish I had a winner. He feeds me. He guides me. He gives me wisdom. He gives me counsel. I used to host him, but now he's hosting me. And you know what I tell him? Dwell in me, Lord Jesus. Dwell in me, live in me, use me, anoint me, speak through me, 